0: Well, you can continue to pray for the Shins. Our Pastor James and family are away in Montana at this time and probably on a boat somewhere. <clears throat> if at least you can turn your in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Our attention will be drawn to verses 14 through 16 at the end of Hebrews chapter 4. And as we turn to this text this morning, our one goal... Our one objective in this message is to magnify Christ. And I believe every message attempts to do that, but here very specifically in an epistle that is all about the superiority of Jesus Christ. We are here to make Christ big in our own hearts and our own eyes, so that our faith would be bolstered, our belief, our conviction, our trust, and our confidence in Him would be strengthened. We will see Christ both in His exaltation, both in His transcendence, His greatness, His uh, beyondness, His otherness, if you will. We will see Him in that light. But we will also see Him very gentle, very near and close to us, very human. We will see both natures of Christ, God and man. But we will not see them in contradiction. We will not see them in opposition to one another but we'll see them unbelievably fused together into one man, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. And so as we draw attention to Hebrews 4, 14-16, it is incumbent upon us to remember that Christ is not a simple figure in our lives. That the Christ of the Bible, the Christ that we love and that we serve and that we worship, is complex that the Christ that we um, strive after, that we strive for, to have our lives and our hearts and our minds be molded around, be uh, be conformed to, is a Christ that is far and away the richest, most complex, most wonderful person in the universe. And yet, with all His glory, and yet with all His majesty, yet with all His power, Christ, as we see in John 17, Christ, as we see Him in this passage and in several other passages throughout the book of Hebrews, Christ as we see Him in those really quiet and gentle and endearing and very um, vulnerable moments in the Gospels, we see Him as a man. And we see Him broken. And we see Him humble. And we see Him not necessarily as an all-powerful king and ruler of the universe through whom the world was created and for whom this universe was created, but we see Him as one who comes down to our level and who understands us and who knows us. And so, those twin poles of Christ's nature or Christ's person and character is going to be the subject of our study this morning. And before we begin, um, in talking about great men, in talking about great people, you know, um, I was originally, we were going to originally name Jacob. Jacob's middle name was going to be Van Til. And some of you know uh, Cornelius Van Til, the famous um, uh, apologist and Christian philosopher and thinker and writer. So his name was going to be Jacob Van Til Park, but uh, my wife really didn't like it, so she said, choose another Christian personage, and uh, it took me a while. And so we landed on J.C. Ryle's last name, Ryle, and so his middle name is Jacob Ryle Park. But one of the reasons I wanted to do, co- choose Cornelius Van Til was because When I read Cornelius Van Til, before I had read Cornelius Van Til, I was at a different kind of end of the spectrum of uh, Christian thought and Christian life. And I came across Cornelius Van Til, and I still to this day don't remember how exactly I came across uh, Cornelius Van Til. I came across him, I think, through one of his opponents. And so I said, who is this guy? And I read Cornelius Van Til, and Cornelius Van Til changed my thinking, changed my life. And I won't get into the details of what that was all about. But Cornelius Van Til, if you don't know, basically was the founder of presuppositional apologetics. And we teach that here at our church. We teach that in evangelism training. I know Pastor Joe teaches that. And Cornelius Van Til basically brought back apologetics to where it should should be, to where it should begin. And that's with the Bible. That's with faith first. That you don't reason to faith, but that you begin with faith, and everything is colored in light of faith, and not the opposite way around. As if somehow you can have neutrality. Like we can be morally and intellectually neutral and then somehow then we can arrive at God. As if fallen men, depraved men, could be neutral. And Cornelius Van Til said, no, that's not right. One of the tenets of basic doctrines, basic tenets of Christianity is that no man is neutral. There is no such thing as neutrality. It's a myth. And so Cornelius Van Til was a great Christian thinker. Uh, If you read his writings, they're very difficult. And he was uh, just a great writer, he was a philosopher, he was a uh, an amazing professor, and just an amazing Christian man in every way and respect. He was also a pastor early in his life up in Michigan. Well, Cornelius Van Til, for being a seminary professor, world-renowned thinker, writer, and all of that, oddly enough, um, or ironically, in spite of his credentials... Cornelius Van Til was actually one of the most humble, gentle men um, in uh, one of the most humble, gentle Christian thinkers that I've ever come across in terms of reading his biography. Late in his life, after Cornelius Van Til had written and had studied and had spoken enough to where he felt like his career was coming to a close, he devoted the last years of his life uh, almost exclusively, on top of doing seminary studies, to going to convalescent homes and preaching and teaching and ministering to the elderly. And it is for that reason, not just because he's a great Christian thinker, but in spite of his greatness, he stooped down and he would reach out to people that no one wants to reach out to. And that is why Cornelius Van Til, I respect and I admire. You know, it's like that picture of JFK, have you ever seen? Where he's in the Oval Office and he's sitting there and he's like signing bills or, you know, something and, under his desk in the Oval Office. You remember this picture of JFK Jr. just playing. You know, he's just playing along and that's just daddy. And for JFK Jr., John F. Kennedy is just daddy. right? But for people back then, John F. Kennedy is the most powerful man in the world. He is the President of the United States. But to JFK Jr., he's just his father. And likewise, you know, when we think about any great person... And the kind of inspiration that they give us in both being great and yet being humble. The missionary biographies that you read, I think a common theme that we will see is greatness and yet at the same time much modesty, much humility, much graciousness and a lowliness of character and mind uh, that God um, finds fertile soil to use. We find these people both at the kind of pinnacle or the heights of spirituality and yet at the same time they're doing very lowly things. And they're getting their hands in the dirt. And they're performing manual labor. Similarly, like uh, the Apostle Paul, the great Christian thinker, the writer of uh, almost two-thirds of the New Testament. And yet, at the same time, he writes over and over again how he worked with his hands, how he labored day and night, how he went from home to home preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. We have both things there, right? Missionary biographies, biographies of Christian heroes, just great men and women, not even necessarily of the faith. You read military stories and you hear about great leaders who inspired men. And I think that if you think through some of those heroes of your faith and you remember them, whether they're famous or not, and you think about the kind of incentive that they gave you to run the Christian race well, right? Think through some of your heroes. But isn't it true as you think through those heroes and as you think about the impact that they've made on your life that ultimately a human example just a purely human model to get you going right to get you pumped up to get to give you a spiritual high and a spiritual boost ultimately a human model only goes so far and it just doesn't last it just doesn't stick it just doesn't give you power to live the Christian life. You see that person, you read about that person, but the actual power, the actual fuel, what you need to generate spirituality, what you need to grow, does not come from a person, no matter how great, no matter how inspiring or challenging their lives may be. Indeed, there is only one where we find true incentive, lasting and effective, and that is with Jesus Christ. Because with Christ. There is actual help, not just a model. There is power, and not just the exhibition of power. In other people, we see great spiritual power, but they cannot transfer that power to us. In Christ, we both see power, and we can receive power to live this Christian life victoriously. There is spiritual strength needed to endure, the stamina that we need to get to where we need to go. You can love Lance Armstrong all you want, and you can worship him all you want, but Lance Armstrong is not going to be able to give you his lungs or his heart or his uh, stamina. It's Just not. You're not going to win seven Tour de France's. Right? But Christ, in the midst of all our sins, in the midst of all our difficulties in this life, in the midst of hostility in this world toward Christ and the Gospel, when we look at Christ and we behold Christ, we not only find a model, but we find great strength power, and actual help to get us where we need to go. And when, interestingly enough, we can gain a more full encouragement, a more full incentive to grow, to mature, as we ponder one interesting aspect of Christ, and that's His high priesthood. Now, it's not something that we often think about as the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, but this morning, as we come to grips with the high priesthood of Christ... And as we come to understand that specific role of the Savior, it will enable us to persevere and to pray in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that is our two main points in the outline is to persevere and to pray. You could say it's to hold fast and to draw near, to cling to and to come close, to persevere and to pray. Well, the book of Hebrews is one long sermon letter. And it's basically doctrine sprinkled with five very key warning passages. And what the author is warning these Hebrew Christians about is this, don't apostatize, don't turn away from Christ. Their problem was this, they were facing persecution. And at this time, it seems like that it wasn't physical yet. In chapter 12, 4, the author reminds them that they have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in their fight against sin. So it seems like that they have not been physically persecuted yet. Although in chapter ten it tells us that they lost property because of for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. And these Jewish Christians, you know, they look across from their church house, let's say, and they see the temple, they see the synagogue. And what they see in the synagogue is this. Under Roman law, they see safety. They see security. They see them not being harassed. On top of that, being Jewish Christians and having turned away from Judaism, what they see is safety from their own kinsmen. You remember how throughout Paul's missionary activities, who were his number one opponents? Not pagans, not Gentiles, but his own people hated and vilified and mocked him. Did they not? And so likewise, with Jewish Christians who had turned away from the synagogue, and by doing so, they would have been kicked out of all social of all commercial life in the nation of Israel they look at the synagogue and they see safety they see safety in numbers they see comfort that we can get back have our jobs you know, we can get back and trade we can be back with our friends our family will be provided for Christianity is tough Christianity right now first century 63 or 66 AD is tough I don't know what's going to happen we don't know if in the future and it seems like it's going to happen the persecution seems to be escalating we may lose our lives our families may be without their husbands and their fathers so let's go back let's go back to Judaism let's go back to sacrifices let's go back to the the high priest let's go back to the to the priests and the whole system of worship at the temple let's go back because of persecution and rejection, these Christians were shrinking away from Christ and drawing close, dangerously close, to what is theologically called apostasy, that is turning away from a conviction you once held. Christianity meant danger and discomfort and outright rejection, but Judaism provided safety and comfort. One was the road of ease, Judaism, and the other the road of difficulty and strife and suffering, and trial, and so they were at a crossroads they were at a crossroads at one moment they could throw away the cross they could throw away resurrection they could throw away the atonement they could throw away the forgiveness of sins they could throw away eternal life with God to find temporal freedom and temporal joy and satisfaction in chapter 6 verse 6 they said if you do this the author says you are putting Christ to open shame you are crucifying him all over again And over again and over again as if one crucifixion was not enough. He says in 1029 that you are trampling underfoot the Son of God if you do this. And if you do this, you are regarding Christ's blood as unclean. If you do this, you are insulting the Holy Spirit of grace. You are insulting God's grace. You are cheapening it. You are making a mockery of God's undeserved favor. He did not have to save you. He did not have to bring Christ to you, but He did the writer is reminding his readers that the office of the high priest, all the animal sacrifices and offerings that needed to take place under the Old Testament system to get forgiveness of sins, all of that is fulfilled in one. One sacrifice. That is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ Himself. And if you roll back to the previous system, what you do is you erase Christ, you erase His sacrifice, you erase His resurrection from the grave, and you are above all men to be most pitied because you have just thrown away the truth. If they wanted to enter true rest, in this life there was tribulation, in this life turmoil, unrest. But if you wanted to enter true eternal rest, promise at the end of the Christian life, if they wanted to make it to the finish line, the author is reminding them that they needed to remember. As Jewish Christians, right? And that's why he's pointing back to the Old Testament so much throughout this book. You need to remember what is the fully biblical and accurate view of Jesus Christ as your high priest and why that is so important. Apart from that understanding of Christ, they would not make it to the end. The point is here that if you have a faulty Christology, Hebrew Christians, or for us, for that matter, if you have a faulty, mistaken, a piecemeal Christianity with things missing in it, what happens is it will inevitably guide you away from Christ and to the road that leads to condemnation. But having a right view of Christ, right, Christ as High Priest would enable them to ride through this storm of persecution and trials, through difficulties just associated with life, just associated with being a human being, and they would arrive at their hoped-for destination be in the presence of God forever. Well, not only is their generation at a crossroads, every generation is at a crossroads. All of us here this morning are at crossroads. Every new crop of believers is faced with one giant reality. Are we going to take a step forward, or are we going to take a step back? Are we going to press on in faith towards Christ, or are we going to end up... Just another statistic. I remember him, he used to be a Christian... Remember, those? Remember that guy he gave his testimony? Oh yeah, he was even serving on staff with us. What happened to him? He's fallen by the wayside. Another casualty of someone who professed to know Christ, but never really did. In terms of the specifics, sure, the life, life of the Hebrew Christians may be different from us, but in terms of the same temptations, the same kind of weaknesses, they're all there. It's all the same we, like them, are facing the reality of overcoming sin, of trying to believe in the Word of God despite our unbelief. And through all that, we are trekking upward, facing persecution, facing hostility, facing the mere just regular sufferings of life, and all the trials that come with living in this fallen world in order to arrive at heavenly rest, true rest with a capital R. And so, Hebrews is an entire letter and this passage for us is absolutely vital because as we are faced with our sin nature, as we are faced with the difficulties of life living in this fallen world, the question is this, will we enter God's rest? Will we make it there? Or will we give up and pack our bags and leave the cross behind and choose the easier road? Right? The road that is more traveled. The wide road, the broad path. Will we choose that road? Will we give up dying to ourselves and live for ourselves so that we may then lose our souls? Will we, give, will we give in to our desires or we will say no to them and live for Christ? Will we just pick up our things and take care of ourselves or will we pick up the cross and follow Christ? And That is the fork in the road that we face, I would venture to say, right? Every day and every month and every year as we, in a sense, renew our commitment to Christ every day, as we seek to grow in faith every day, that is the fork in the road that we face. Well, as we turn our attention to this passage at hand, it is just built upon two major exhortations. Let us hold fast, verse 14, and let us draw near. Let us persevere, and let us pray. And apart from who Jesus the High Priest is, and what He as High Priest has done, these two exhortations are going to have no basis. These two commands, right? These two urging requests and pleas are not going to have any kind of meaning or substance unless we understand what He has done and who He is as our High Priest. Well, the first exhortation is to persevere or to hold fast, and that is in verses 14 to 15. Read along with me. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Well, we are called to persevere because of two reasons. The two reasons are this, found in verses 14 and 15. The two reasons are his position and his compassion. The position of Christ, and the compassion of Christ. We are called to persevere, because of the position, and the compassion of Christ. Well, let's examine the first reason, the position of Christ. And it's there in verse 14 at the beginning, therefore, because, or since, we have a great high priest. We have a megas high priest. Well, what is a high priest? We need to know that, before we understand what a great high priest is, well, the high priest is essentially an ambassador, a kind of representative, a mediator, a go-between for man, between man and God. The high priest in Israel had this position from heredity. Through the family line, he had this position for life, kind of like our Supreme Court justices. And what he basically did was oversaw the entire worship of Israel, unto God. All the offerings, all the sacrifices, everything that needed to be taken care of inside the tabernacle, and then later on in the temple, the high priest was the man. He was in charge of it. And as you know, the worship in the Old Testament was very, very specific, very, very detailed, because God was physically present in the Ark of the Covenant, above the Ark of the Covenant, uh, above the mercy seat, which is actually the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. He was there. And so to make even a one slight error or mistake right, was a grave sin. Now there were a number of priests but only one high priest. And so every year on the Day of Atonement only one time the priest was allowed to go in from the outer court of the temple or the tabernacle into the holy place and then one more step the third step into the most holy place the Holy of Holies right, to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to receive mercy from God so that all the, na- all the sins of Israel would be forgiven for that year. Kind of like the blanket forgiveness that you get. Because all the animal sacrifices, all the offerings that you give could not cover everything, right? You would have to bring millions and millions of animals and, um, sac- and um, grain offerings and drink offerings over and over again. And because of that, because that would be too burdensome, too tiresome, what God instituted was the Day of Atonement. One day of the year... I will cleanse Israel of all your sins. In fact, when the priest, high priest went in to see the presence of God, to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, they would put ropes on him. and They put a rope on him and they put bells on him. Why? Because if you stop hearing bells, he's dead, so we drag him out. But if you keep hearing the cling, 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 cling of the bell, you know he's still moving and doing his thing in there. And he's alright. There was no unconfessed sin, no error in worship. Once a year this happened and Israel was forgiven. So the high priest, what he basically did was in himself, in his body, as he came to the presence of God, the very presence of God, he stood as representative of the entire nation. He stood for all Israel and as he sprinkled the blood himself and through him all of Israel would be reconciled to God, would be in a right relationship with God. Well, Jesus is that high priest, but on top of that, he is the great high priest. And no priest in Israel was ever called a great high priest. They were called great priests, they were called chief priests, they were called high priests, they were called anointed priests, but they were never called great high priests. It's like saying great, great priest, like holy, 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 right? repeating something almost in a sense, making it more intense, making it greater. And he is a great high priest, greater than any other Old Testament priest, because he offered the perfect sacrifice for sins. He never had to offer it again, once for all, no more animals, no more offerings. He was the great high priest because he lived the perfect and sinless life, as it tells us in Hebrews 7.26. He was a great high priest, greater than all the other priests, because he lives forever. And so our salvation is secure forever and ever. And as our text tells us, if you look at the middle of verse 14, he is a great high priest because he offered, not, not only because he offered the perfect sacrifice, but he did this in the very presence of God. He passed through the heavens. Right? When he came with himself, when he came with his own blood, his own sacrifice, which was himself, his own body, he did not go into a temple. He did not go into and open a curtain and going to the Holy of Holies. He went to the real Holy of Holies, and that is the very presence in the throne room of God Himself. He passed through the heavens. And the amazing thing is, is that the tense of the verb tells us not only has He passed through the heavens once, but having passed through and being now in the presence of God, He is still there. He is still and will always be in the presence of God as our great High Priest. He sat down at the right hand of the Father and He continues to minister on our behalf. Similarly, remember last week where Pastor James was talking about John 17 is a continual kind of prayer that Christ offers up on our behalf? Well, this describes it. This describes the action surrounding that prayer. The high priest in the Old Testament never sat down. There were no seats in the tabernacle, in the temple. Why were there no seats? Because having a seat meant that you would put down and laid the one final sacrifice for sins. No more sacrifice needed to be made. But no, the bulls of calves and goats, they're not going to fully take care of sins forever and ever. Only the blood of a perfect God-man could, and that was the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, because He was the perfect God-man and offering that perfect sacrifice, He could sit down. And He didn't sit down in the human temple, He sat down next to the presence of God as our ambassador, as our Representative. He has finished the work and now he has entered his rest, right? And him entering his rest, it's just a parallel for us. It's a mirror of what our rest is going to look like as resurrected Christians. As we look forward to the future, we know what it's going to be like because Christ has already gone there. Resurrected Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has entered his rest in the presence of God. And that ensures and that guarantees that we will be in heaven with God. And so, author is saying, he's there. Don't waver, Hebrew Christians. Right? Judaism is safe right now, but Christ has paved the way for us to be with the Father forever and ever. Don't waver. Don't turn back to the dead system of animal sacrifices. Jesus Christ paid for your sins once and for all, and He sits at the right hand of the Father, ministering on our behalf as our ambassador and representative, don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't look to Judaism. Look to Jesus Christ. He is, in 1 John 2, 1, our advocate, our cosmic defense attorney. So that when we sin, right now, if we sin and we go to Him, He continually pleads our case before the Father, thus thus bringing forgiveness and spiritual cleansing. Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34 tells us that He continually mediates for us. He makes intercession. Even as we would make intercession for one another in prayer, He makes intercession on our behalf so that we can come to God in prayer, so that we can commune with Him, so that our salvation is fixed and final and secure throughout all eternity. And so because of this, because of Christ's presence with God, because of Christ's ministry at the right hand of God, what does Paul say in Romans 8.33? No one can bring a charge against God's elect. No one can unseat your salvation. His very existence in heaven shows that we too will be with the Father in heaven and that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. And yet, at the same time, as he's... As he's magnified Christ by calling him a great high priest, and saying that, that he's passed through the heavens, ministering on our behalf at the presence in the presence of God, he calls him in verse 14, Jesus, the Son of God. This is Jesus, the Son of God. This Jesus, born in Bethlehem, died on Golgotha, the perfect man. The Son of God, on the one hand, worshipped by angels, worshipped by men, eternal King, Creator of the universe, with all the attributes of God. This perfect God-Man, right, who suffered, and was broken, and was scourged, and insulted, and mocked. This perfect God-Man, that's the one that you have faith in. That is the essence of your of your confession, of your testimony. It's about this God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the one that we publicly declare as our Lord and as our Savior. And as the only true way to life, and to the Father. The Hebrew Christians were in danger of being carried away by various teachings. right? And they were in danger of being carried away back to Judaism because they didn't want to fight anymore. The author of Hebrews is making Christ so great here because he wants them to focus on him and not on themselves. They were too caught up in their own circumstances, too caught up in their own struggles, in their own difficulties and in their own worries. And he's saying, fix your eyes on this Jesus, the Son of God. If you would but fixate your thoughts and your emotions and everything that you are upon him, you would hold fast to your public testimony of Jesus Christ. You would persevere you would continue to abide in Him. You would maintain your faith. And you would do it with your dying breath because of who He is, not because of who you are. And it does take our effort. The author tells them to, to, and he says, and he includes himself, and he says, let us hold fast. Let us cling to it. Let us grab onto it and seize it and not let it go. It takes our effort but remember who it is that we're expending our energies for. Remember who it is that we are clinging to. It is Christ. And He has conquered sin and death. And He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. And He is, on top of all of that, serving you and serving me as the great, sheep, as the great shepherd of the sheep. And He just awakes the day when all His enemies will be under His feet as a footstool. But He is serving you and He is serving me. Remember His position. Remember who He is. And that will cause you to persevere. That will strengthen and stretch and deepen your faith. Because your vision of Christ grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger than this world, bigger than the problems of this world, bigger than your life, bigger than your soul. Then He consumes everything. And everything becomes nothing Because it's all about Him. And that's what the writer wants them to think about. Well, we are called to persevere for two reasons. Not only because of His awesome position as great high priest in heaven, but also because of His compassion. We're talking about the twin poles of Christ, right? His position, great high priest, exalted in the heavens. And yet His compassion. And the compassion of Christ comes out in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sins. He states it positively. I mean, he states it negatively first, right? Who cannot sympathize. And then he states it positively. Who has been tempted in all things. Well, first, the negative. And as the Hebrew Christians maybe read this, they're probably thinking, well, he's a great high priest. He's too far removed from us. He's too transcendent, he's too exalted, he's too great. I mean, he's a Megas high priest. No other priest is called that. He's Jesus, the Son of God. Isn't he way up there in the clouds? Isn't he just too far to care? Too far to be uh, mindful of us? Too far to reach out to us? The high priest of Israel and the system of sacrifices and temple... That seems so much closer. That seems so much within reach. That seems so much easier. It's tangible. It doesn't require effort or work. It doesn't require faith. They may have liked that. They may have liked the fact that it was easy. And that Christ, the Son of God, Exalted High Priest, He is God. He's created the universe. He doesn't care about us. But no the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus as high priest as the perfect representative and minister of us can indeed sympathize with our weaknesses. And the idea there behind the word sympathize in the English translation I know it kind of gives off a a soft touchy feely um, nuance to that word but it goes beyond it goes beyond just sharing feelings. It goes beyond just feeling what you feel all the way to and including the element of active help. And that is Christ's sympathy for us. It's also used in 1034 to speak of these Hebrew Christians showing sympathy to prisoners. Right? Much more than just feeling their pain, but actually helping them out. He can more than feel our pain. He can more than understand our weaknesses, which are our frailties, right? as fallen people the frailty, the weaknesses that we have that leave us susceptible to temptation and to sin, He can identify more than identify with us because positively speaking, He has been tempted, as it says in verse 15, He has been tempted in all things as we are. Right? He has been tempted in all things. Now this does not mean that Christ on earth was tempted with every possible temptation that you can imagine. But it does mean, however, That Christ, like us, because he was fully man, was susceptible, vulnerable to all the temptations that are connected with human weakness, with being a man. He experienced the full range of temptation. He was tempted by Satan in Matthew 4 to be concerned with himself only, with popular acclaim and with ambition for power. Remember that? He was tempted in the garden at Gethsemane to draw back from the cross rather than go through the agony of it. Matthew 26, 38 and following. He was tempted to come down even from the cross. Remember when they were mocking him? If you're Lord, right? Come on down. Matthew 20, uh, Matthew twenty-seven forty and following. He was even tempted by his own disciple, Peter, to turn aside from the scandal and the shame of the cross. Matthew 16, 16 21 and 23. His whole life was a series of external temptations brought upon Him to do one thing and that was to sway Him from fulfilling His great commission. That was to die on the cross and to be raised again on behalf of the world to the glory of the Father. And had He but given in one time, had He but succumbed one time to one of these little temptations or great temptations, our salvation would have been sabotaged. And He... Would have turned away from his very own Father, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would have turned away from God the Father. And what he would have done is what the Hebrew Christians were in danger of doing, and that is apostasy. That is rejecting their confession. But thanks be to God, thanks be to Christ Jesus, he did not give in. You remember when Peter said, No, no, you no, know, no, Christ, no teacher, you will never die. Don't say that. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Right? He did not give in. He was tempted and he was tried. You know that song says tempted, tried, and sometimes failing? That's us. Tempted, tried. And how about, try this, never failing. He was put to the test and he felt the weaknesses of the human flesh from the inside out. But he did not sin. He did not sin. Those two little words in the Greek, without sin, and at, the end of chap- at the end of verse 15, they make all the difference as we look to Christ, seeking to persevere in our faith. Why? Because He did not fail. Because after being tempted, the result was always perfect. Because of this, when we go to Him, we know, not only will we receive receive compassion, but we will receive compassionate help and actual spiritual aid to persevere to hold fast to our faith in the public arena and not fold and not leave he entered into our sufferings all right he entered into our emotions into our difficulties he came in to our position and he made them his own he didn't just try on a human suit for a while but he lived it and he breathed it and he felt it and he thought it and that the resu- and yet with the result being without sin One commentator wrote this. He said, Sympathy with the sinner in his trial, in his temptation, does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls, he who sins, yields before the last strain. Christ felt the full force of temptation because, unlike us, He never gave in before temptation's full power, full force, was exhausted upon Him. Does that make sense? Before temptation could have its full, just, you know, just lay in on Christ, He didn't give in. He waited all the way to the end, temptation gone. But us, we don't strain, we don't push to the end. The last strain is there, right? Right? No temptation is too hard for you to bear, right? You can bear it because God always provides a way of escape. But it seems like so often we don't push to the end. We don't, we don't go to that last step, that last strain. We often and easily give in. But for Christ He didn't. And on top of that, can you imagine Okay, suffering through all those temptations with the full force of them bearing down on you. But at the same time with each new temptation that came the extra sharpness that he must have felt with each new one. Why? Because having never failed, his mind would have been so sensitive to sin, so sensitive to God, that with each new temptation, it was extra painful. But for us, with each success of temptation, because there are so many previous failures, we don't feel the sting of temptation as much, because our minds and our wills have been dulled by past failures. But not so for Christ. He truly understands and felt our pain in a way deeper than we can ever imagine. And so it's because of this that we can understand how his experience was so much more intense than ours, and how that led to his compassionate help being that much more intense for us. He has an unimaginable capacity as a great high priest to help those who are helpless to defend the defenseless, to gird up the weak, and to guard us from Satan, to guard us from the world, to guard us from ourselves, because He is the God-man, because He was in our world and in our skin. We can hold fast to our faith, can we not? I mean, through all the trials and difficulties that come, just living in this world, not even associated with our own personal sins, we can persevere in our walk. I mean, the question is, how can we compromise our faith? How can we even buckle? How can we give in so often to our sinful and our natural tendencies when there is immediate, powerful, compassionate help waiting above? That sin you cannot have victory over, that human weakness that makes you susceptible and prone to laziness, that makes you prone to anger, to pride to anxiety or depression, to envy and jealousy that makes you prone to lust, that particular human weakness or set of human weaknesses that make up who you are. With all of those things, how can we overcome them? If we but come to Christ. If we but have a greater vision of who He is as High Priest, both as exalted, having finished the work of sin once and for all, so that we will always find forgiveness with Him, always find strength with Him to overcome our temptations and yet at the same time His compassion His lowliness His nearness to us so we can find one who is our brother who is made like His brethren it says in chapter 2 of the same book. Our view of Christ is not too glorious it is too small it is too puny it is too vague and it is too soft. See Christ is not just hanging on a cross and He is not just raised from the dead He has risen and He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and He has finished destroying the works of the devil conquering sin and death and He is ministering moment by moment on your behalf so that our future heavenly rest our position in heaven with God is secure forever and on top of all that right? we see the risen and ascended and seated Christ we must remember His compassion we must remember that He is as close as the person next to you. That He is as real and alive and understands and knows our pain and struggle better than the person next to you. See, He was made low and He became one of us. He is God, but He is also man. Well, we've seen <clears throat> clearly that we are called to persevere for two reasons. His, compa- his position, His awesome position and his unbelievable and amazing compassion for sinners. But secondly, we see in our text the other exhortation, and that is to pray. Very simply put, it is to pray, it is to draw near. In light of who Christ is, in light of his glorious position as high priest, in light of his compassionate help towards us, we are called, and our response is just one thing draw near pray. There are three dimensions shown us in verse 16 about drawing near to God through prayer. And they are the attitude of prayer, the place and the benefit. The attitude, the place and the benefit. Verse 16 Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Well, first, this attitude of confidence. Because it's compassion toward us, is actually powerful and effective, it does actually help you in your temptations. And because of that, you must draw near. And so we are priests, it says in 1 Peter 2.5. Uh, and so as priests, we come to Him and we approach Him in prayer. And this language, draw near, it comes from the Old Testament. It's used four times in this epistle. Remember, the Old Testament, the priest, high priest, can only draw near to the presence of God one time for a very specific reason, once a year. But now, under the new priesthood of Jesus Christ, the Christian can come again, and again, and again. We can come anytime, and anywhere, to the very presence of God, through our prayers. And beyond that, we come with the attitude of confidence. Draw near with confidence. With boldness. With frankness. With openness. One ancient ancient translation of the New Testament says, with eye open. With your face turned towards Him. Not in fear of rejection, not cringing, not tiptoeing in, but come with confidence. And this attitude is not because of anything we are or anything that we've accomplished or done, but it's because of who Christ is and what He has done as the High Priest. He has trailblazed a path into Heaven for us. Through his blood, he has made a a living way for us to reach and approach the Father. So his acceptance with the Father means, it equals, our acceptance with the Father. And not just any kind of acceptance, but our free and wide open access to God on the basis of being united with Christ. Wide open at any time. We can go to God's throne room with courage and not fearing rejection, but asking whatever we, whatever we wish in the name of Christ to the glory of the Father and it will be given to you. And that's the confidence that we have. The attitude that we must have. It's the free speech of the believer. The free speech to express your heart, to express your soul to God, to pour your soul out to the Lord. That is what is being invited that is what is being encouraged and, uh, and exhorted to us. That's the invitation. That's the, uh, the, the, the guest pass that's given to us to come at any time freely. Well, on top of the attitude, there is the wonderful place of prayer. and yes, it is the very presence of God. But it's called in verse 16, let us draw near to the throne of grace. It is the seat of the King that we come to. It is the high and lifted up throne that we see in Isaiah 6. It is the seat of sovereign power and majesty, the seat of eternal glory and might, and yet, he says, it is a throne of grace. Not many thrones in the history of man have been characterized by grace. Men with power are corrupted, especially if they are on a throne, because of the absoluteness of that power. And yet, God who does have supreme and absolute sovereign power has a seat that is characterized by grace, by favor, by an active goodness towards undeserving sinners such as ourselves. It is a place where grace, where His goodness is dispensed free of charge, is dispensed freely. You pray, right? You pray before the very face of God on a throne of grace you imagine meeting the president in his oval office and having a conference with him but can you imagine being invited being urged being commanded to come to God's chair to God's oval office so to speak and talk to him and to converse with him to commune and fellowship with him meeting him and what he wants to do is surround you with grace what He wants to do is dispense mercy and grace upon you. What He wants to do is take care of your weaknesses and make you more like Christ. That's the presence we are coming to. That's the kind of room that we enter as we pray. The room where the throne of grace is central. Where God's love and active favor is poured out and lavished upon you if we would but take the invitation, take it up and come to Him to pray remember what Christ has done. He has opened the door to heaven. He has opened the door to the throne of grace. And that is where we find great benefit. And that's the third dimension of prayer. And We have the attitude. We had the place. And we come and we find such an amazing and awesome benefit of prayer. Awesome benefit of drawing near to God through Christ Jesus. This is what they needed to see. This is what they needed to be encouraged by. Hebrew Christians Right here and now, yeah, it's all good and well. But look at where you can go. Look at the kind of resources that you have. Right? You have all of these benefits and privileges opened up to you wide open and yet you would slam the door shut on eternal riches. And you would willingly make yourselves poor and you would willingly make yourselves thirsty and you would willingly make yourselves hungry when all your needs are taken care of right here. Christ's power of sympathy is always accompanied by His power of help. That is the benefit of drawing near. You receive mercy, as it says at the end of verse 16, and find grace to help in time of need. The hardness of the struggle against sin and against the world bearing down on Christ and those who are united with Christ, it must lead us upward to the throne of grace where we will find mercy where we will find grace. At the throne of grace, we receive mercy, the text says, for our weaknesses. Right? It's more of a passive idea. When they are, when they are overwhelming, when our weaknesses have, are getting the better of us, we receive mercy from God. But we also, actively speaking, find grace as we seek it out. As the necessities of life dictate, as we need it, we go to the throne of grace And find grace. To press on toward maturity. To press on to become made more like Christ. In our present and in our future work for the sake of the gospel and of finally entering our heavenly rest in the presence of God we find grace. Mercy is extended to us in our weakness. And grace is sought by us according to the need of the moment. And in both cases look at that Little phrase at the end of verse 16 to help in time of need to help in time of need in both cases the aid the help that comes from God is a timely help it's a timely aid it is divine assistance in our struggle to hold fast our confession when we want to throw in the towel when we don't want to take a stand for Christ in public in the midst of unbelieving eyes what God gives is timely assistance. It's always in the nick of time. It's always help. It's always grace and mercy tailored to fit your particular need. And that's the beauty of it. It's not just some vague, indefinite grace and love that He just lathers upon you. You know, as we pray, we pray definite and specific prayers to God. Likewise, His grace and His mercy are very definite. They fit exactly into our lives. So that upon receiving mercy, upon receiving grace and finding it there, we have all the equipment that we need to dig ourselves out of our own sinfulness, out of our own weaknesses and triumph over them in Christ Jesus. Well, that's the awesome benefit of prayer. The Hebrew Christians had that in front of them and yet they were struggling to cling to Christ. The cure... For their spiritual disease was at their fingertips right before them, and they would rather stay ill. They would rather stay sick. The benefit of prayer, the place of prayer, the attitude of prayer, right? These are things that are facts. This does not happen because we do something, right? We go there, and this is what we actually find. We pray, and we are there. And this is the kind of God that we meet. Isn't that an awesome incentive for us to pray? Well, you know, you will persevere in your faith in Christ. You will pray with confidence at the throne of grace. But only if, only if you understand who you place your faith in. Only if you will believe and trust in this picture of Christ, that's presented for us, our great High Priest, who can sympathize with us. Only if you truly believe and have faith in these three verses and the glorious portrait painted of Christ in in here, will your perseverance and your prayer continue. You know, faith is a really puzzling reality if you think about it for a moment. It's the conviction that what you cannot see is real, right? It, it's It's believing that what you don't see has actual substance. That what you can't touch, see, smell, hear, feel, taste has definition. That it's tangible. And even more tangible than this world. It is the unshakable belief right, that these words on a page in a book are true and they are powerful and they are absolutely necessary for this life and the life to come. It is this unwavering confidence in the one who has dealt the death blow to our sins, who knows and who understands us through and through. It is the distrust of ourselves and a full trust in Christ. See, the Christ that you come to, the Christ that you persevere in and for, and the Christ that you pray to, is the Christ who can ease your fears and worries by reminding you that He's in control and that tomorrow will worry about itself. He's the same Christ that can pry you out of your bed and off of your couch to pray and to read His Word. He is the same Christ who can cover the eyes of your lusts in those moments when temptation grips you. He is the same Christ who can give you that sensitivity and that caring heart so that you want to and you know how to talk to various people in their specific circumstances. It is Christ who can make you a man of your word so that when you say you're going to do this or that for your family, for your friends, for Him, you actually carry it out. This is the same Christ who can give you insight and boldness as you go out there and you share the gospel to even the most rebellious as you stand up in your classrooms, and your workplaces, for Christ, and for the virtues of the Christian life, He can do that for you. This is the Christ who can pry our hands from the checkbook or wallet or purse so that we can release the goodness of the plenty that He's blessed us with to those that are less fortunate and to those that are out there ministering the gospel in faraway lands and in difficult places. This is the Christ who can soothe the pain of an unspiritual husband or an unspiritual wife or children so that you have enough strength to humble yourself despite those circumstances and live in a humble and selfless way. This is the Christ who can fill your heart with joy in the midst of physical ailment or personal grief or family distress as he reminds you that all trials are for your perfection that all things actually work together for good, even your mistakes and your sins, to those who love God. Christ who takes gently the gavel out of your hand as you pound out judgment and as you criticize people, and He shows you the higher road of love. He he shows you the higher road of honest self-examination and self-repentance. And Christ who takes the Unedifying and the bitter and the harsh words and the impure thoughts out of your mouth and out of your heart. And He fills it with treasures of holiness that you can then take to other believers and lavish them with so that they would be rich in Christ, that they would be benefited, that they would be mutually edified and encouraged. This is the Christ who can satisfy you with Himself when all you've been drinking is from the world and you don't know why you're still thirsty. Everywhere around us, there's this one tune, this one song that keeps, I keep hearing this one song. I keep hearing this one tune everywhere. And it's not just coming from the world. It's coming from within my heart and within all of our hearts as well. And it's a song that is beating there as an echo, I believe, from the mouth of Satan. And it keeps saying, go against God. And it keeps saying, turn your back. And it keeps saying the cross is too heavy to bear. Why are you doing this? And it keeps saying following Christ is not worth it. And it's on repeat. And it keeps going over and it keeps going over and it keeps over and over again. And it plagues me. And it plagues all of us. But as we read these three verses and as we meditate and reflect upon Christ, our exalted and compassionate High Priest, what He is doing is He is continually extending a grace-filled, merciful hand to guide you through your temptations up out of darkness and into the light. The question now for us is, will you take His offer? Let's pray. God, we come to you now in our weakness we come to you now in all our frailties in all our sins and everything that makes us who we are God we come to you and we want to be exposed by your word but we also want to find grace we also want to receive mercy Lord the grace and mercy that we need to overcome sin to overcome the temptation to give up and not to push and not to make the last strain. Help us, Lord, to persevere in our faith and our public confession of Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. And help us to pray to that same God, to that same Lord and Savior, so that we too, like Him, may enter our rest. May our vision of Christ consume all our worries, consume all our interests and all our desires. And may indeed You be our first love from here on out and forevermore. In Jesus' name, Amen.